Good morning. Uh, what a delight to be with you. What an encouragement to my heart. Um, what, what a beautiful thing uh, to be here in your midst. Um, I'm Ted Sin, and I'm a church planter downtown, a church called City Church. And we are a daughter of Orangewood Presbyterian. And I'm primarily here to say thank you and to encourage you. I'm here to say thank you because of your generosity. The generosity of Orangewood Presbyterian Church, starting at the very top and moving all the way down to the bottom. The generosity of Orangewood has established another church in Orlando. And God has planted a church and he has used you to do it. I want to encourage you. I know it was expensive. I'm completely aware of that. I feel that. I sense that. I know it. I'm thankful for it. But the 30 people that you sent out has multiplied twice over. And God has brought new people into his kingdom. And then I come here and I see that God is still doing an amazing work here. And when I talk to Jeff, Jeff and I spend a lot of time together still. It's so encouraging to hear what he's doing here. We miss being here. It will be hard for me to not be here next week because of what God is doing here. So I just want to say thank you. I want to encourage you. Please, please, please do it again. I know you think we can't possibly do that. I know you think it's too expensive. I know you think we can't handle it. And that's exactly where God wants you. In your weakness, he's strong. In your poverty, he's rich. In your foolishness, he's incredibly brilliant. Please do this again. There are so many people in Orlando who need this. And God spreads his kingdom by us falling to the ground and dying. And he produces much fruit in our sacrificial living. Thank you so much. I'm here to say my heart is warm with gratitude and I'm so encouraged to get to be with you uh, this morning. Your pastor is fantastic. I hope you know that. I hope you love Jeff. Hebrews says make it easy on him to lead you. I hope you're doing that. That guy is incredible. He still meets with me. He still listens to me. Uh, he, he even came and preached for me and my little old flock that could fit right here uh, a couple weeks ago. He's a fantastic guy. I pray that you're praying for him. I pray that you're encouraging him. I pray that you're listening to him. I pray that you're following him. Uh, he's incredible. And I just want to tell you that I continue to benefit from him. When I meet with him, you would think he would just teach me because he, he, he adequately and rightfully could. But instead, he listens and he asks good questions about my family. And um, he has incredible uh, questions that get right to the heart of the matter with me. And so I hope you guys are encouraged uh, by Jeff. And I hope you continue to follow him and um, be encouraged that he is the man that God has called you to. Uh, I speak differently than Jeff. Uh, if you can't hear me, it's because I'm not as good at, at this. Um, so don't hesitate to turn around and tell them to pump up the volume uh, when you can't hear me. I've preached here before and I, it's consistent feedback. So Colossians chapter 3 is where I'll be teaching uh, from this morning, verses 1 through 4. And um, because we meet at night, and because I'm new in the presbytery, I get invited to go preach other places in the morning. So I've just kind of made it a rule for myself that I just try and preach something I've recently uh, done at City Church. Um, we're in chapter 4 now, but I'm going to preach from the beginning of Colossians chapter 3. And the reason for that is this. When you're small, you can still do a lot of things. I'm telling you, our preaching is not as good. Our music is certainly not as good, although uh, I'm really proud of our volunteers and what they're pulling together. Um, the facilities are not as good. We get to have them for about 90 minutes a week. Um, but uh, one thing um, that has been really helpful for me is I have been meeting with um, new believers and skeptics every week to talk about my sermon. 
and just to see if I'm hitting the mark at all. Very humbling, uh, very difficult to hear. This particular sermon, the feedback to me was um, in three categories, and in three categories very strongly. Uh, the first uh, category we're going to look at in, in verse 3, it was, Ted, that was one of the most enlightening things I've ever learned from the scriptures, how you've helped me understand who I am right now, is I wait for Jesus to finish the work he started in me. It was very helpful. It was very enlightening. Uh, secondly, we're going to look at verse 4, and, and the feedback I got on verse 4 was that I was so encouraged by what you said. It was so encouraging for me to hear about how God the Father sees me and how he delights in me and how he loves me and how he can get outside of time and space and really just look at me as his son or daughter in Christ wrapped up and beautiful. That was very encouraging, especially when you realize who we currently are, what we're still dealing with, who we, how we continue to behave at times. And I'll flesh that out soon. And thirdly, I want to bring some conviction. I want to go back to verses 1 and 2 and say, okay, based on what we've seen in 3 and 4, let's look at what Paul calls us to in verses 1 and 2, and let's deal with this conviction in a gospel-oriented way that Jesus has died for us, that Jesus has lived for us, that Jesus lives in us, that Jesus is changing us. This is the change he's calling us to. Not that he might love us more, but because he loves us so much. This is what we can look at. We can repent of this sin, the old man, and we can put on the new man and begin to live for others. So let's do that. I'll read from Colossians 3, 1 to 4, and then I'll pray. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I come to you and I ask for you to feed your sheep. I come and I ask for you to be the teacher. You are our only teacher. I pray that you would send your counselor and comforter and that you would lead us in this time. Lord, I am clearly, clearly a finite, fallen man. I don't understand all things. I can't even begin to understand all things. And I'm a sinner. I'm just desperately in need of you. This week, I was harsh with my wife and I exasperated my children. And I was so tempted to live a lie and to live apart from who you say that I am. And yet, for some reason, you've called me up here this morning to tell these people that you love them and that you couldn't be more delighted in them and that you've got big plans for them and that you can be trusted. Lord, I pray that you would use me to this end, that you would be uh, glorified, lifted up, exalted, worshipped, trusted, that you would be believed. And I pray that my friends would be loved. I pray that they would experience one slight degree of glory, becoming one little bit more like you, that we would just trust you, that in this time you're doing your gospel work of transformation, that you are changing us and saving us and making us human. We ask for you to do this with great speed and give our hearts faith. In your name we pray. Amen. First, I want to give you something I hope enlightens you. Number one, you're dead and alive at the same time. Do you see this in verse 3? You have died, past tense, you're dead, and your life is hidden with Christ 
in God. You're dead and alive at the same time. Chapter 3, if you'll go home and look at it this afternoon, chapter 3 is all about how you grow in character. Chapter 1 of Colossians is this great, um, this great story, if you will. It's this great doctrine, if you will, that Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior, that you have in Him everything you need to be related to God, to be related rightly with yourself, to be related to other people, to relate to nature. All you need is in Jesus. And chapter 2 is about how you don't grow. It is about how not to try and grow yourself in character. How not to try and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. How to not try and make yourself better. And then chapter 3 is this incredible passage on how you do grow. And this is the story on how you grow in Christian character. This is the story on how you grow in being like Jesus. This is how you become human. You're dead and you're alive. Paul is going to unpack in Colossians chapter 3 this reality that when you were born of your mother's womb, you were born as the old self. Verses 5 through 9. He's going to describe you and me, born of our mother, born into sin, born as the old self. This is a description of the old self. Everything revolves around me. I am the center of the universe. Any person and anything that gets into my way, I will either use them to get to where I want to go, or I'll remove them because they're getting in the way of where I want to be. That's the old self. He talks about greed and lying And he talks about uh, all kinds of sexual sins. He talks about um, all kinds of anger and nasty stuff. And what Paul is saying is he's saying, he'll say, put off in verse 5. And then in verse 9, he'll say, put to death the old self. But he's already said in verse 3 that we've died with Jesus. Okay? So this is going to, I hope this helps you some. That when Jesus dies on the cross, we die with him. And yet that death plays itself out in our lives until we either go to see him in glory, that is when we die, or when he comes back and consummates his kingdom. That you have died, that God can see you as someone whose sins are paid for, and yet as a father he can deal in your life with the old self and ask you to put to death what's going on there. At the same time, when Jesus dies for us on the cross, not only does he pay for our sins, but he gives us his beautiful life. He gives us his magnificent record. He makes us new creatures. And so Paul can say, starting in verse 10, I want you to put on the renewal of this new life. And it looks like compassion. It looks like forgiveness. It looks like humility. It looks like gratitude. And this is is the part that I hope is enlightening. We have a lot of new believers down at City Church. And it's really good for them to hear This is their experience. I sense that God is doing something in me. I sense that he has broken into me. I sense that he has come deep down inside of me as the hope of glory. I'm getting that. I I feel that. Uh, I'm wanting new things. I'm doing new things. I'm feeling guilt that I've never felt before. But at the same time, I have these incredible besetting sins that I just don't don't seem to have any power over. And I tell them, I feel like I'm looking in the mirror. That's me too. That's every believer until the the day we die. The new creature is growing and the old self is being pushed out. In Romans, Paul talks about the inner self. What is truest about us is that we're new in Christ. And we have this new nature and we have these new wants and these new desires and these new behaviors. And at the same time, in our members, Paul says, so he says in our extremities, in extremities, that is truly part of us, but not at the core of who we are is the old self. 
So if the old self is everything revolves around me, and I'll either objectify you or use you or remove you to get what I want, the new self says this, I'm so satisfied in Jesus, I can come and revolve around you. That I'm so satisfied in Jesus, I can come and make my life about your life. That he's given me such a beautiful life, and he's given me such great peace, and I'm so full of hope that I don't have to chase after my kingdom anymore. I can come and help you with what you need. That's the new self. And so I hope this is somewhat encouraging. Let me illustrate it this way. Um, some of you know we, um, we purchased a small house in College Park and uh, on a big lot. And then my dad, being a, a retired general contractor, um, we were able to make that small house the size of a house you need for a family of six or seven. Um, we don't have a seventh child on the way. We do have an older daughter that we've sort of adopted for a while that lives with us. So we needed something that could, that could house seven folks. And one of the very last things we did, I wish it would have been first, one of the very last things we did was we, we redid the landscape at 1222 Ladle Lane. And the reason I wish I w- we would have done it first is, as you know, it, it did the most for Curb Appeal. I've driven by this building wherever it is. I get lost in this building. It could be back there as far as I know. But this new building that, that I drove up to today looks so much different with landscaping. It's just amazing how it changes things. And one of the plants that, that was planted in front of my house is jasmine. I don't know if you know anything about jasmine, but jasmine is this little tiny plant that starts off, in my yard it started off as one little leaf. And my landscaper planted them a foot apart in all directions. And he kept talking up how great this jasmine was going to be before he planted it. And so I pulled up that day and I saw the sod and, and I saw the rose bushes and, and I saw... Um, the, the, the gardenias, and, and, and I saw all these different plants, and I, I couldn't see these amazing jasmine that he was talking about. And so I had to get out of my car from the street and walk up to the house, and then I saw these little leaves about a foot apart. And so I called him. I said, what in the world are you doing? Did we run out of money? I mean, can I go to Home Depot myself and buy some more? It looks really silly right now. He said, just trust me. Give it about two weeks. Give it about two or three weeks, and you'll be shocked as to what happens. I thought about it a month later when I pulled up, parked on the street, and looked up and I could see jasmine completely covering the ground of the front part of our yard. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says this. He says, the gospel, which is the power of God to save you and change you and transform you. The power of God is growing like plants in and among us. That as God takes the new self And as he transforms us and changes us and causes the gospel to make us new, not only are we becoming new, but it's pushing out the old. So we are indeed growing. I'll tell you this, though, now, that not only did we put in sod and jasmine and little rose bushes and other things, we put in this great little idea called a sprinkler system. And the sprinkler system is brilliant. Those first couple months when it was not raining, now it feels rather redundant with all the rain. But this sprinkler system, the one uh, real, real problem I have with it, and uh, I'd like to talk to the manufacturers if possible, is if someone could help the sprinkler system figure out how not to water my weeds. <laughs> because it's not smart enough to know that I only want some things to grow in my yard and not other things. And so the work of every Saturday for me is the work of pruning and cutting and fertilizing, and sometimes watering, and causing to grow what I want to be there, and at the same time, pulling out by the roots what I don't want to be there. 
And that, my friends, is what it's going to be like from the day Jesus breaks into you to change you until the day he takes you home is that spiritual work of watching him fertilize you and cause you to grow and at the same time root out in you through repentance and faith what he doesn't want in there. I hope that enlightens you. Second, I want to encourage you. Second, I want to encourage you. Look at verse 4. This life, this sort of bipolar life of being alive and dead at the same time is one day going to end with you being completely alive as you were intended to be. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You'll appear with him in glory. Paul uses a word here called glory, and it can mean a lot um, in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But what it means in this context is a word that Paul uh, likes to use in other places, including Romans. Is he, he likes to use this word glorification for when the new heavens and the new earth descend. And all that is evil and wrong and sinful inside of me and inside of my relationships and in my world. When all that is wrong is eradicated. And only that which is good is here. My, my kids, my two oldest are away from me um, right now for two nights at their grandma's. And... and and I'll be honest, I'm anxious. I'm praying a lot for their safety. They're, they're five and six. The new heavens and the new earth will be a place where I don't pray for their safety. I won't have to. They can walk right up to a snake and play with it. Walk up to a wild beast and hug it. Because it won't be wild anymore. And glorification is going to be this time where Jesus, right now as believers, he says in, in Colossians 1, he plants his spirit deep down inside of us. He's Christ in us the hope of glory and he will replace his presence inside of us with his actual presence next to us and he will use his fingers and his hands with scars still in them he will use his fingers to dig out the tear ducts of our eyes and say no more crying in my kingdom this is glorification and not only that this to me is the most spectacular part I will not be able to sin anymore This is what Paul calls glorification. Do you see what he says in verse 4? When Christ, who is your life, appears, when he comes back and lights up the sky in his second coming, when he comes back and the trumpet sounds and his kingdom is consummated, his kingdom is brought to completion, and, and Satan and the dominion of darkness and the kingdom of darkness is put away with forever, including the effects inside of you and me. When he puts that away, it's called glorification. And I want to confess to you, this is, I hope, is the encouraging part. I want to confess to you that for a long time, I thought of glorification as being future only. I thought that somewhere in the future, heaven existed, instead of right now what our passage says, which is heaven exists right now above us. You see that in verses 1 and verses 2. We're going to come to this commandment soon. Set your minds and your hearts. Set your eyes on the things above, not the things in the future. What difference does that make? Think about this with me. Somehow, some way, right now, there is a glorified Ted Sin who doesn't sin anymore. And the really fantastic news of the gospel is this, is that Not only does the Father look at me in my life through the lens of Jesus and his beautiful life, he actually sees me beautiful. Listen, God is not a sugar daddy. He is not some big grandpa in the sky that has a soft part for evil people. 
He's a just and righteous and good and holy God that loves perfect people. And that's exactly who I am with my life hidden in Christ Jesus. What difference does that make? It makes all the difference in the world. God doesn't just put up with me. He delights in me. God doesn't just stand in heaven and Jesus say, you can't smite him, you can't smite him, you can't smite him, you, you smit me on the cross. He, he, that's true. Jesus does that for us. He argues for us in heaven. And at the same time, in some way, with God who is outside of time and space, he can look at me glorified. And he can love me like his son. He can love you like his daughter. Not based on who you currently are, but based on who he's promising to make you in Jesus Christ. It takes out fear. It takes out putting yourself on detention when you sin. It takes out manipulating him. I promise I'll never do that again. It takes out all of that. It lets you come into his presence that says, God, you are so complex. I understand that you discipline me as a father and you're rooting out the old self. And yet your disposition towards me is that I'm your son and you are wild about me. And you want me to come near. You don't want me to go away. And that what qualifies me to be in your presence is the reality that I'm a broken, sinful man being put back together by your promises by your gospel, by your spirit, by your word, in the context of your community. I was at General Assembly a couple of months ago now. I'm not good with time. And uh, it could have been last week as far as I remember. But I was there, and, um, and a friend uh, came up to me. Um, and uh, the night before, we'd gone out to dinner, and we'd had some drinks. And we talked about what God was doing in our lives. And and we talk about ministry, and this is sort of how our relationship works out. I generally, it's going to be a shock for some of you, but I'm generally the encourager in this relationship. And um, I'm usually the one trying to just really uh, rally behind him. He's in a much tougher place than I am. And so um, we just spent the night at a bottom dinner, and I just really doted on him, and I tried to love on him. And I really enjoy him. I enjoy this guy immensely. And uh, the next day, um, he comes up to me, and he says, uh, Ted, I... I just feel like the Lord has laid this on my heart that I'm supposed to tell you this, that you're just a really crappy friend long distance. That I miss seminary when we were friends. We would talk, we would relate, we'd give one another encouraging notes, we'd go to the bar. We're buddies. But I've tried to reach out to you since distance has been between us and I can't seem to connect with you. And when I, when I was with you last night, it was just really hard for me because it reminded me of what I'd really like to have in you as a friend. And I went back to my room at about 10.45 in the morning and I just started crying. The second guy in as many days to tell me the exact same thing. That I'm just a really bad long distance friend. And as I sat and as I read and as I journaled and I prayed, I felt like God was saying to me through his scripture, not audibly, but through his scripture, I felt like he's saying, this is good. I want you to cry about this. I want to root out the selfishness that's part of your old self. I want you to repent of it. I want you to hate it. I want you to turn from it. I want you to curse it. I want you to hate it as much as I do. I hate the selfishness of your old self. And at the same time, I want you to know Jesus is the best long distance friend anybody's ever had. And when Jesus sent his disciples out into the mission, he was anxious about them. He was worried for them. His mind was full of them. And when they came back, he, he rejoiced with them. 
And I want you to remember, Ted, I want you to know this, that my love for you is not based on how bad you've treated that friend. My love is based on how well Jesus loved his disciples. And I've forgiven you. I've forgiven the old self. And not only that, I've put a new you inside of you. This new you is being renewed after the image of your creator, Jesus. And I want you to know that you can believe that I'm going to make you into a great long-distance friend, not because of who you are, but because of who I am. That it is my aim in your life to make you loving and beautiful and human. And it will not be done until I see you face to face. But my friend, you can trust that my love for you has nothing to do with whether or not you love him better next year. But because Jesus lived for you, he died for you, and he lives inside of you. I want you to weep. I want you to repent. I want you to trust. And I want you to believe. This is what it's like to be us. The old is still in our extremities. It needs to be repented of and hated. We need to call out for Jesus to save us. Lord, save me should be on our lips more frequently today than the first day we believed. I believe it is your gospel power that changes me. Please save me. And at the same time, I absolutely believe that you're changing me. I believe, I see fruit in my life of you making me about other people. I see fruit in my life about it not being about me. I really want that. Would you do that for me? I hope it's enlightening to know that you're alive and dead, and I hope it's encouraging to know that God the Father sees a beautiful you in glory. And I hope it's encouraging to know that glory is not this place that one day will come into being. Glory is a place that exists right now. And glorification will be the process of it appearing. That glory is true of you right now. And glorification will be that process of it appearing. And last, I want to turn back to verses 1 and 2. I want to go back to what Paul started with. And I want to end with that, with a little bit of convicting. I want to look at the logical implications. Go back with me. If you've been raised with Christ. So so far in, in chapters 1 and 2, Paul has said... This is what Jesus does for you. He finds you in your sin and rebellion. And and he finds you in your animosity towards him. And the the way you hatefully treat yourself. He, He finds you in the way you use and objectify other people. And this is what he does for you. He lives for you. He dies for you. He's risen and you're risen with him. And then in chapter 3 we find out not only that. He's gone back to be with the Father. And I'm united to him even in that. So since I've been raised with Christ. Seek The things that are above. Where Christ, present tense, is. Present tense, seated at the right hand of God. Not only that, verse 2. Set your mind on things that are above. Again, this is glory. Set your mind on glory. Not on things that are on the earth. Chapter 3 is chocked full of these verbs that have an ongoing, um, ongoing translation to them. Uh, that have this ongoing sense to them. This is not going to be a one and done situation. I hope you've picked up that idea. Maybe as a new believer. That it's not a one time decision to repent of a particular sin. It's going to be an ongoing process. And so literally it says, if you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above. Keep setting your mind on things that are above. Keep not setting your mind on things that are on the earth. I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 3. Uh, Paul is the man who wrote Colossians. He also wrote Philippians. I'm reminded of chapter 3 verse 18. Listen to all the themes we've already picked up on in our passage. For many, 
walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. This is how they're an enemy of the cross of Christ. They have their minds set on earthly things. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Application questions. I just have a couple and we'll be done. Do we make too much of earthly things? What do you think about when you have nothing else to do? What do you dream about? If I could get my hands on your checkbook, on your calendar, on your prayer book, on your journal, my hunch is that it will look a lot like mine. Not an incredible fascination with glory and with heaven and with all things being made right. But unfortunately, my guess is just like me, it's going to be this fixed-like trance on earthly things, thinking that from these things we can draw life. And Paul says, no, you can't make life of a career. You can't make life of money. You can't make life of sex. You You can't make life of being a good person. You can't make life of being a good son. You can't make life of any of these things. You can only find life in Jesus. And he is in heaven, and in fact, you're already in heaven. So let's put our reverence and our worship, and our hearts there. What do you think about and obsess about when you can't sleep? I remember my dad never sleeping when he was my age and older. And I remember just always waking up and he'd been up for hours reading books. And that is now me. That the anxieties of this life, the earthly things of this world have become so big and monster-like to me that I obsess about them. And Paul's saying, that's not going to give you life. Only Jesus is going to give you life. And let me tell you where he is. He's in glory. And that's where you are as well. I know this is hard, but even in this worship service, in this place, think of all the means of grace in this room. Singing, praying, scripture, the fellowship of the saints, the teaching that God teaches through broken vessels. Think of all that is in this room and think of how distracted you and I have been since worship started. I mean, if there's any chance for heaven to break through and give us a foretaste, is it not in this room right now? Think about how distracted we are. I need a boyfriend, not me personally. (laughs) I need to close some deals this week. I need my kids to behave. I need someone to rent my house in Lakeland. I wonder how this sermon's going. I hope they're liking it. I need to find out how I'm doing on that eBay item. I need to check Craigslist for this. I need to look at the bottom line of my IRA to find out if we're going to make it. Just think about even in this this place where heaven should be most readily available to us, that we just fix our mind and believe life comes from earthly things. Application question number two. Not so that God can love us more, but because he already loves us. Do we make too little of heaven? Do we make too little of heaven? I remember as a young boy, and this may not surprise you, but as a young boy, uh, I was really afraid of heaven. And frankly, I still am to some degree. The idea and the concept of it lasting forever just about ruined me. I could not handle it. And so as a four-year-old, I went to my mother and said, listen, is there any way that I could just pop my head up into heaven and see what it's really like so I can decide if I really want it or not? Because forever is a really long time. (laughs) 
And I asked her as a four-year-old, I didn't say it like this. I said, can I just stop? And what I meant by that is, can I just cease to exist? She said, no. Here's the problem with my view of heaven. As a young boy and as a 33-year-old man, I'm absolutely and utterly convinced that heaven is better than hell. It's going to be hot and it's going to be a long time. It's going to be lonely. And it's going to be your selfishness all on top of you apart from Jesus. So I'm convinced as a four-year-old, in my question, can I just stop? I'm convinced heaven is better than hell, but I am not convinced that heaven is better than a good life now. I remember as a middle schooler praying, Jesus, I know you don't know when you're coming back. But if the Father tries to send you before I play varsity soccer, please stop me. <laughs> Jesus, and then, and then this is the way idolatry works. It doesn't satisfy. It does not provide life. It will not make me whole. It will not give me peace. So I play varsity soccer and the prayer is, Jesus, I know you don't know when you're coming back. But if God the Father sends you before I play college soccer, please ask him to wait just four years. It's been so long. What's four more years? And then it's, Jesus, I love this woman. Please. And, and I probably didn't articulate it this way, but I know this. I was convinced that being married to Tricia having sex with her, having a career, having children, having a big inheritance, or a a big inheritance, sure, I'll take that, having a big (laughs) investment portfolio, I was absolutely and utterly convinced that was better than heaven. And so no wonder my eyes are right here on earthly things, a potential place to repent. The reality is this, is that heaven is going to be beyond our wildest Imaginations, But I want to go in to application question number three this way. My favorite commentator on the book of Colossians wrote this. The Bible does not say very much about heaven. Regardless, right now it's a real popular thing to, buy, to write highly. Um, it's a really popular thing to write highly um, speculative books on heaven. Really popular. Although Paul says in 1 Corinthians you can't even begin to imagine it. The Bible does not say very much about heaven, but the central feature is this. It is the place where the crucified Christ already reigns and where you as his people already have full rights as sons and daughters. And I would like to ask you this as application question number three. Do you make too little of Jesus? Look at our text. You want to know where Jesus is? The pearl of great price, the great treasure, the kingdom of God. Do you want to know where he is? He's above in heaven. Do you see verse 4? The climax of this section. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. I've made so Little of Jesus. Frankly, as a kid, singing songs to him sounded quite boring because I didn't treasure him. I didn't love him. I didn't see him as necessary for a good life. I saw him as a golden ticket out of hell. And I didn't love him. And to my chagrin, I would like to say to you that when I'm living out of the old self, I take everything and everybody... And I either use them as a vehicle to where I want to go or I remove them completely to get out of my way. 
And in the old self, the self I have to repent of, I have to repent of using Jesus as a golden ticket to heaven instead of loving him for the beautiful man that he is. I try and end every sermon at our place like this with such new believers trying to pound into our heads and hearts what Colossians 2, 6, and 7 says, which is this, that the way you grow is correlated to the way you started in the faith, that the way you started in Christianity is the way you mature in it. And this is how you start in Christianity. (laughs) Gratitude, repentance, and faith in the context of community. And so every sermon I preach at City Church, if time allows, I conclude this way with some ideas, things for us to repent of, things for us to say is true about us, things for us to hate, things for us to turn from. I try and end with some items of faith, and I try and remind my friends why they need each other more than they can possibly imagine. Maybe you're with me in some of these today. Repentance, turning from earthly things is a way to establish life. Repentance, turning from the idea that the physical here and now is my home and my citizenship. Repentance, turning from the selfish use of Jesus as a vehicle. Faith. Does Hebrews 11.1 potentially make more sense to you now? A definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith. Faith is turning to Jesus, who is your life. Faith is the declaration of today. After being a Christian for 20 years, I restate the reality. Jesus, you are my life. You're the best lover I could possibly imagine. You are the pearl of great price. You are more beautiful and more amazing and more pleasurable than anything I could ever imagine. I want you. Faith. God sees and loves the new me in heaven. Faith. I believe that you can create in me what you already see. I believe that you can push into the depths of my soul what is already true about me in glory. I believe. In community, I'll close with this. A couple months ago, my oldest, Matty Six, um, uh, excuse me, Riley, uh, my, my five-year-old, comes running down the stairs, and you can hear her in, in, in a house with wood floors, and she's screaming. And she comes into our bathroom, and uh, she comes in to let Trisha and I both know that Maddie has just pinched her. Her six-year-old sister has just pinched her, and we can see the mark on her face. And so we call Maddie downstairs, and she's already crying. She already knows that she's violated her sister's space. She already knows that she's done wrong. She already knows that you don't touch people in our house without permission, nobody. And through tears, and through sobbing, and through sadness, she said, Dad, I kept telling Riley she was beautiful and she wouldn't listen to me. And so I pinched her to get her attention. (laughs) My daughter Gigi does puzzles with me, and um, I'm a bad dad. I'll just tell you right now. Um, I can do puzzles with her and watch Sports Center at the same time. <laughs> but a couple of months ago, Gigi caught on. She would always take a puzzle piece and she'd always put it in the wrong spot to be funny. I'd say, No, that's the wrong spot. And I could hear it click. And I would hear it click and I'd say, Gigi, turn it over. And so she would turn it over and put it in the slot. 
This routine we could do for hours, and I could watch entire baseball games. One day, she got right in front of me, instead of sitting next to me. And she's standing, and I'm sitting, leaning against the, back of the couch. And she grabs me by the face, and she says, Daddy, listen to me. Let me tell you what you guys need and what I need. We need believers to come get right in our face and grab both of our cheeks and say, listen to me. You are beautiful in the sight of God. And he falls in love with you every morning. And Jesus couldn't be more delighted with where you are. And he's going to root out the old self. And he's going to discipline you. He doesn't want you to do that. That's just not loving. But he doesn't want to punish you. He punished Jesus. He doesn't condemn you. He condemned Jesus. You are righteous. You're beautiful. You're loving in his sight. The scriptures teach, apart from community, we cannot begin to experience that. Let me pray. Most gracious God and heavenly Father, I worship you and I thank you and I adore you for this place and for these people. I'm so excited about what's happening here at Orangewood. Thank you for how this feeds my soul. Thank you, Jesus, for how you've nourished me this way this morning. Would you please be with my friends? Would you please comfort them and convince them that you love them? Would you please knit them together as a body? Would you please make them more missional than they ever thought they could be? Would you please continue the work you started here? I am convinced of this, that you who began a good work is faithful to complete it. Amen.